Well, hey everybody, Jonathan Dahl with you here. Thanks so much for taking a moment to check out this short video. I really hope it's gonna be useful for you. I hope it's gonna be useful for me. Uh, I guess in that context, I should give you some backstory. I came into this whole area very, very late in life. I like to joke that I had the world's worst economics teacher back in the 11th grade. I won't name names, but uh, in high school, I had a real love for the subject of economics, but I think my teacher was kind of really looking forward to retirement, and so most of what I learned was straight over the top. So uh, since COVID and since what I firmly believe is some very significant government overreach, uh, the life that I had, the business that I had, uh, was severely impacted, of course, by many of the things that have played out in recent time. So during the lockdown, I was doing a lot of training and I was on my trainer bike watching some YouTube stuff and I ended up somehow down the precious metals rabbit hole, which led to me thinking about economics in general. And then I've been on a journey since that time. So if you're watching this, there's a very good chance that you know far more about economics than I do. So I hope I can have your patience as I work through this. I think my background was originally in teaching years ago, and I enjoy teaching, and I think one of the best ways that I learn is to teach. So MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, or as Jim Rogers likes to call it, More Money Today, is a really big thing at the moment. Obviously, you've heard about it if you've come to this video. So I wanted to understand it. I think it's very easy to be highly critical of it, especially if you're from more of a classical economics perspective, a libertarian perspective, it's so easy to, you know, to chant Ed in the Fed and uh, to critique MMT. But I really felt that I should understand it. And to do that, what I wanted to explore was the work of Stephanie Kelton, who's written this book called uh, The Deficit Myth. I'm sure many of you be familiar with it. The first thing I wanted to say is, well, look, let me give you the background of what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to work through the key aspects of this book. So I'm going to be reading through it forensically, and I'll put out a series of short videos about what I'm learning as I go. So in terms of housekeeping, I, I would love you to be commenting on this, helping me, helping others by, I guess, sharing your thoughts and insights as I work through the book. So the best way to do that would be to come across to the actual posts on uh, the Supply Side website. So if you just go to supplysidepartners.com, supplysidepartners.com, you're going to find the posts and there'll be spaces to comment there. And I know a lot of us in economics really like to, to do that. So please comment. And uh, you may be hearing this in the podcast format, or if you're seeing this on YouTube on the Supply Side podcast channel, please post some comments there. Uh, it's just very helpful for me and helpful for others. So I guess what I'm trying to do is start a discussion, a serious discussion around Stephanie Kelton's work. So before I jump into a few slides, this video will just be an introduction. She, she sort of works through six key myths. So I want to work through those quickly and give you those in the first video so you get a framework for where we are going to go. And uh, I did have a couple of introductory things I wanted to say to you about Stephanie Kelton and her work. I spent a lot of time yesterday reading through the introduction and, and what I felt was, and I watched a few videos of her as well, and, and I want to say this, Stephanie Kelton is a serious economist. Now, you may not agree with where she gets to with any of it, but I watched her in a video and I thought, this is a, a serious person doesn't mean she's right, but it means that she is serious. She comports herself, I feel, with a, with a lot of dignity and, 
and I, I admired that. I watched the debate with her and uh, the other person was just the typical rant about we're going to be Venezuela, we're going to be Greece, but didn't really engage where I thought she held her composure really well. So on my notes here, I think we need to take her very seriously. Uh, you know, for better or worse, she's making us all think about the nature of political economy. And uh, she's somebody that's done a huge amount of work. I mean, she's, she's you know, studied at the highest level. She's been immersed in this for many years. And as I said, she may be wrong, but let's not fall into the habit of blah, blah, blah. She's this, she's that, because we none of us know her personally. Uh, we don't necessarily know her motivations, but we just need to engage with the ideas. And, you know, here ends the homily, here ends the sermon. But I think you probably agree with me that so much of what we're seeing in social media and in general public discourse in the public square, it's extremely vitriolic. And I think the best way to beat a bad idea is with a good one. So let's explore the ideas. Uh, a couple of opening thoughts about MMT. One thing I've noticed when you listen to people talking about MMT uh, who are advocates, proponents of it, is they they seem to say that uh, MMT is, is descriptive. They're sort of saying it's descriptive of what's actually happening. I felt there's a bit of sophistry there. Yes, MMT is quite descriptive of what's happening in our sort of global shadow banking reserve system, but it's not simply descriptive. I think there's a bit of sophistry in that. It's kind of like saying that, um, you know, lethal injection is, you know, just describing something that's happening. I was thinking about that driving this morning. You know, lethal injection is the end result of a whole bunch of other beliefs and processes around you know, society, jurisprudence, justice, natural law, all these sorts of things. So, you know, lethal injection is the end point of a whole bunch of things that came before it that bring about that reality, whether you're for it or against it. It's not my point. I felt a little bit that what some of the MMT people are doing is just saying, oh, MMT is just descriptive. It just describes what's happening. That's For me, that is sophistry. It, it's more than that. I mean, it's, it's a set of beliefs about how economies and uh, finance, both monetary and fiscal stimulus, should be handled. So I think a little bit more honesty there would be a good thing. MMT is not just descriptive. It's, it's a genuine belief about how things should happen. And in these videos, we want to sort of see where that's likely to take us. Uh, last few opening reflections from me was as I read through her opening chapters, what really seemed to strike me, and I hope you can add something about this in the comments, is that it all seems extremely statist. You know, it, it's her fundamental, I guess, idea at the start in the opening chapters, at least as I read it, was you either position government at the centre of reality or you position the individual at the centre of reality. And I know all you libertarians out there would be nodding, but I don't, you know, here in Australia, we don't have a huge libertarian tradition. So I kind of came to this, just gravitated to this sort of by osmosis. As I read it, I was like, you know, why do we think that the government automatically knows best how to do all this? Uh, and the more that I read, it just felt very statist. And as we hit the slides in just a moment, I want to show you a quote that Stephanie Kelton uses in the book from Robert Kennedy, which when I read it, I was like, it's a little creepy. <laughs> it's just a little creepy. So we're going to look at that. Um, you know, she makes the point early on that that the government doesn't need our money. So one of the central tenets of MMT, at least as she's communicating it, is the difference between currency users and currency issuers. So we are all currency users, but of course, none of us are currency issuers. And she makes the point that basically the government uses money, creates 
currency, let's get the definitions of currency and money correct, obviously, creates currency so that we have something to pay our taxes in. And the reason we need that is the government doesn't need money from us. And what, this is what she says. She says what the government needs is to provision itself. What the government needs is to provision itself, to provide for all of its uh, agendas and processes and systems. And it needs us to work. This is sort of the language she's using, that it needs us to work. It needs us to become teachers and doctors and, and solicitors and, and all these things. And, and it gets us to do that by forcing us to pay taxes. And, of course, we have to pay taxes in their currency. So it's almost as if for the government, you know, currency really is a little bit irrelevant. What matters is whether they can use currency to make us do things. And as I read that, it, it did sound, of course, very status, but it also sounded a lot like a hive, like we serve the hive, you know, th that we exist to serve the hive. My second master's program was in philosophical anthropology. And so I've got a very big interest in something called ontology, which is kind of the, the study of essence, the study of being, what things are. And as I read this work, I was struck with this idea that what about the human desire to work for its own sake, the desire to produce beautiful, interesting, valuable things? You know, if we were simply working just to pay taxes to provision the state, then why create something beautiful? And I guess you could make an argument that, well, we create beautiful things because they have some kind of subjective extra value and they get more money. And But I was really interested in... It's, it's a very reductionist view of reality to say that we only want to work to get tax money, to money to pay taxes, so then we can provision the state. So I want us to think about that. Uh, last couple of things. Uh, yeah, as I read through that kind of, that, that, as that status thing emerged inside me as I read it, I couldn't help thinking that command economies don't have the best track record. You know, I, I'm a reasonable student of history and you look at command methodologies and modalities of political economy and they are as best i can tell and please add something in the comments if i'm wrong a absolute train wreck i've been reading george gilder's knowledge and power we are talking about the information theory of capitalism right where the the genius of capitalism is its ability to coordinate these vast numbers of signals these vast plethora of informatory signals Whereas command economies don't have that sophistication, nor can they. It's also the idea that, you know, that, that there's a certain group of bureaucrats that are just so much better at knowing how to allocate resources than we might be. So I'm not a big fan of command economies. So I want to see as I read the book how that question gets resolved for Stephanie. She also sees taxes as a tool for wealth redistribution. And if you're anything like me, that makes you feel rather nervous when you hear that word, wealth distribution. So I think part of this conversation we want to be having about MMT is really this conversation around, should there be wealth redistribution? Uh, at what level? Who would make the decisions about it? You know, soak the rich doesn't tend to work in practice particularly well. The rich have a very, very long history of uh, finding other ways to survive being soaked, if you will. Last thing, she talks about taxes as a government form of uh, discouraging undesirable behaviour, undesirable behaviour. When I read that, I was like, who gets to decide what's undesirable, right? On what basis? See, when I get out of the studio here today, I'm going to be drinking some bourbon. It's Friday afternoon. It's freezing cold. I'm having a bunch of friends around. We light a big fire. I'm going to be drinking some really good American whiskey. And 
I'm pretty sure that there's plenty of people that would say that's an undesirable behavior and it needs to be taxed. So I stop it. I ain't going to stop it. And I'm going to be smoking a pipe as well. I don't smoke a pipe a lot, but when it's cold and I've got American whiskey, I'm going to smoke a pipe. So taxation has implications for some things that I really enjoy. And look, I'm having a joke here. I mean, no, well, sort of, because I am actually going to be doing those things. But what right does the state have at what level uh, you know, to tax undesirable behavior? So we need to have that discussion too. All right, that's it for my opening bits and pieces. What I wanted to do now was just flip you into a few slides that I put together that will give you the, uh, the process that Stephanie Kelton is undertaking here, the myths. And then over these next series of videos, I'm going to try and go through each chapter carefully. So with the magic of Zoom, let us see if I can effectively share this screen, which I can. So let me do this. Unfortunately, I can't see what screen's coming up, but uh, I'm pretty sure the first one is where we're talking about statism. And I want to give you this rather creepy quote that she uses from Robert Kennedy. Not sure I want to be taken too much moral guidance. Anyway, enough said. Here's the quote. If I've got it right, fingers crossed. Government belongs wherever evil needs an adversary and there are people in distress. Government belongs wherever evil needs an adversary and there are people in distress. Yeah, okay. On one level, I get it. Uh, if, you know, if you're uh, in World War II and the Nazis are burning down your village and then, you know, the, the, uh, the US Army comes through the hedgerow, that's a good thing because you've now got an advocate on your side against the axis of evil and you're in distress. So, yeah, I get that there's a context in which government does belong where evil needs an adversary and people are in distress. But I think if you look at that quote, you know, what kind of track record does government have at uh, knowing when to stop? And who made government the arbiter of what exactly is evil? And uh, what exactly constitutes distress? So again, we uh, look. It's amazing as I talk about it. I keep finding myself in this libertarian kind of perspective here, don't I? Uh, in the sense that who is the best to decide uh, what is necessarily evil and uh, and what is necessarily distress, and how much help do we need from the government to deal with? Excuse me, I adjust this to deal with these complex issues. So let's get into this now. I think what we've got here is the first myth. So I'll start to spin you through these. Myth one, the federal government should budget like a household. So what I'm taking you through here is what, uh, what Stephanie Kelton's doing is going, here are these six major myths, and these myths uh, are completely untrue, and MMT is going to help us resolve them. So so that's the myth, this idea, of course, that governments should stop spending money, they should be like a household. So her basic premise in Chapter 1 is that governments are absolutely nothing like a household, of course, because they're an issuer of their own currency. So the reality, according to Dr. Kelton, is unlike a household, the federal government issues the currency it spends. So I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole with these yet. This will be the purpose of the following video. So we'll do a video just on Myth 1 uh, as I work through it. So... Uh, she does make an interesting point, though, and in, in, as she talks about this, she does make the point that politicians tend to use the myth to their own advantage considerably. So you, we're all very familiar with politicians in opposition saying the government's living beyond its means, the government's doing this, the government's doing that, these deficits are unsustainable. We've all heard that. So in MNT, she's making the point that uh, governments aren't anything like a household because uh, where you and I are constrained by finance uh, and the inability to produce fiat currency, 
the government is not. So she wants us to understand in MMT that uh, there's no relationship between our own experiences, our own personal experiences of finance and what the government can do. And, you know, she makes the point that the question isn't what can be done, it's what should be done. So she sort of, I think she's making the point that basically printing's unlimited. And I know many of us are very much aware of that, how fast it's growing. So she's basically going, yes, printing of, of a sovereign currency is essentially unlimited. But uh, it's, uh, she's basically saying it doesn't matter because they can just go forever. So that's the first myth. Let's get into the second one. Myth two, deficits are evidence of overspending. So this is the idea, of course, that uh, when we see def deficits, it's simply because the government is living beyond its means. And uh, the reality, according to Stephanie Kelton, is if you want to see where the evidence of overspending, you would simply look at inflation. So in MMT, Deficits are irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether it's a trillion dollar deficit or a $10 trillion deficit. All that matters is whether or not you're seeing inflation. Now, I know many of you are going to have thoughts on that. So please let me know what you think in the comments. And this will come out, of course, when I do a video just on this second chapter. So really, it's about inflation. And as best I can tell, uh, central banks are having a fair bit of in trouble getting inflation over the last uh, decade or so to move north, of course, recently we've seen uh, at least CPI evidence that that's really beginning to shift. All right, myth number three, deficits will burden the next generation. If you've heard me talk on the podcast, I've said to many guests, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's George Washington said this, that, that no generation should incur debts that it cannot pay, that it cannot pay off in its own lifetime. I'm pretty sure that was George Washington. Somebody might correct me on that. So there's this deep idea that many of us hold that it is wrong to incur a debt that will be then transferred to future generations for our own, prof uh, you know, as a result of our own profligacy. You know, uh, I said to Karen, my wife, just before I came to the studio, I said, uh, you know, to be like Karen and I, you know, remortgaging our properties to the hilt spending everything we could on credit cards and then dying and saying, hey, kids, good luck with that. Uh, so there is this strong idea, isn't it? We all feel that it is not appropriate just to keep spending and spending, especially on so many unusual wealth transfer and entitlement programs if it means that future generations are going to be impacted. Yet, according to Dr. Kelton, the reality is, in fact, that the national debt poses no financial burden whatsoever. For me, that was one of those moments when the, uh, you know, the record scratches on the record, you know, the needle scratches on the record. I'm like, eee! the national debt poses no financial burden whatsoever. Okay. Okay. Uh, had a conversation with someone earlier today, and I've had this same conversation a few times. Much of MMT seems to subvert the laws of the cosmos. I said to this friend on the phone today, point to something in nature that, just is supranatural, supranatural, above the natural order. Show me a true perpetual motion machine. Uh, show me, you know, the ability to make unicorns appear out of thin air. Uh, you know, it seems that the universe is constrained by laws of reason and rationality and mathematical order. Everything in the cosmos except MMT. I'm not being flippant there. I know it does sound it, but I'm interested in, in how we can incur debt and it have no ramifications for the future. So again, in humility, 
I, I'm going to read the chapters. I'm going to see what her perspective is. And I know some of you are picking your jaw up off the floor after reading that last reality. Let's do number four. No, we have a, firstly, we've got a quote. Let me do that for you. I'm going to give you a direct quote on no national burden, uh, no financial burden for the future. Here's a quote from Dr. Kelton. She says, government deficits don't force financial burdens forward onto future populations. Increasing the deficit doesn't make future generations poorer and reducing deficits won't make them any richer. I don't know what to say about that. Speechless. And again, you know, I'm going to read and find out and hopefully get educated and you're welcome to post in the comments and say, Jonathan, when you put that slide up, uh, and if you want to get these quotes on the website, splicesidepartners.com, uh, I'll put the slides up as well. So I'll have a series of PDF or PNG files there. You can go through these direct quotes. This is from page 10, by the way. So how she says that, I don't know. So let's press on. Myth number four, government deficits crowd out private investment, making us poorer. So the huge amount of spending and printing has no impact on private investment. And according, that's the myth he thinks that many of us believe. But the reality, according to MMT, is, drumroll please, fiscal deficits increase our wealth and collective savings. I think I feel like I've stepped through a wormhole. Fiscal deficits increase our wealth and collective savings. I don't know what to say about that. I really have nothing to offer. Uh, I'm going to read the chapter. I'll get back to you. Uh, we're up to myth number five. Deficits make the United States dependent upon foreigners. So all that money flying out of the country, that massive global exodus of US dollars. I'm looking over the other side of the studio towards, I think it's Richard Duncan's, uh, is it the dollar collapse? No, I'm looking at uh, no, the dollar crisis by Richard Duncan, where he forensically goes through the movement of US dollars into China and overseas. And basically how that money, I mean, Dr. Kelton makes the point that that money comes back and people simply buy US treasuries, you know, they get interest-bearing treasuries. But it also drove huge amounts of malinvestment in property, in stocks, in equity markets. So the idea, at least from my understanding at this point, is that that huge, those huge deficits, those trade deficits, uh, you know, have had enormous negative effects, particularly upon the US general population. But- According to MMT, drumroll please, reality is not that we become dependent upon foreigners, but wait for it, America's trade deficit is its stuff surplus. America's trade deficit is its surplus of extra stuff. So this is some kind of double entry bookkeeping master Yoda Jedi mind trick thing that I don't fully understand, but I will read the book. And I'll get back to you on that too. So I hope you all subscribe wherever you're watching this. Please subscribe, YouTube, on the website. Uh, you can just email me direct, Jonathan, at supplysidepartners.com. I'll get you on the list So because I'm, I'm recording this, but I'm actually pretty curious about what I'm going to learn. Let's see some Jedi magic happening here in MMT. All right. I've got a quote here. We do. If we wanted to, we could pay off the debt immediately with a simple keystroke. Page 11. If we wanted to. We could pay off the debt immediately with a simple keystroke. You know, this is another one of those things where if you or I did that, we go to jail. Uh, and I'm kind of thinking that if I was holding huge amounts of US debt and the US government deleted it, I'd be cross. 
I'd be just a tad on the miffed side. Miffed. Not furious, just cross. Wow. All right, myth number six. Myth number six. Entitlement programs are financially unsustainable. We can't afford them anymore. So my understanding is that uh, future commitments to Social Security, Medicare are like something like 130, 170 trillion, give or take, over you know the long haul, uh, unfunded. But according to MMT and Stephanie Kelton, you can do this. Entitlements don't need to be touched. Here is the reality, according to MMT. Reality, as long as the federal government commits to making the payments, it can always afford to support these programs. What matters is our economy's long-run capacity to produce the real goods and services people will need. I like the line here, as long as the federal government commits to making the payments, because we can trust them when they say they're going to commit to it. Trust us. Vote for us. We will keep the punch bowl exactly where it is. Uh, Don't want to be cynical, but if the government promises to maintain something, hmm. So in the second part of this, obviously, Stephanie Kelton is talking about this idea that what we need to do, it doesn't matter what the debt is, all we need to do is grow GDP, right? You grow the economy, uh, then you can deal with your huge deficits and your debt. Uh, now, how do you do that when you've got a demographic time bomb everywhere? I mean, everyone talks about China, but the Chinese demographic issue is just off the scale. You know, one child policy, um, yeah, okay, not a thing. So China's uh, demography issues, the US's, most of the developed world's demographic issues. You know, as one great historian famously said, friends, demography is destiny. Demography is destiny. So I don't see how you grow your economy indefinitely with a shrinking population and an an aging population, to which people, of course, reply, well, you do it through technology. You, uh, you get massive productive gains because of the application of technology. You know, you go back to the 1860s, you get the Industrial Revolution, you get the steam engine, you get this huge productivity growth because of technology. I don't know about you, but, you know, go and read Ross Douthat's book, The Decadent Society. Uh, uh, two seconds. I got it right here. So this is uh, Ross Douthat's. Uh, Ross Douthat's awesome. He is, in fact, he is rarer than a unicorn with a pocket full of hen's teeth. Ross Douthat is the only conservative writer at the New York Times. All the other ones were taken out and uh, sent to the Gulag friends. But Ross is still there. He wrote this book, The Decadent Society. You need to read it. Uh, He makes the point that basically the developed world is out of ideas and technology is actually atrophied. I mean, think about it, right? Yeah, we've got nanotech. Yeah, we've got some things. But you go back to the 50s and 60s and, and, you know, the US space program was really quite seismic. We've had the same iPhone for about 15, 20 years, give or take. I don't remember when it came out, but guess what? Here's a phone. It looks like the first one. What does it do now? Well, nothing different except record everything you say and send it to Jeff Bezos. That's all it does now, right? Um, So technology is, you know, but also I think the gains of technology are captured in a very, in a relatively small section of the economy. They're not huge employers. Of having read, you know, huge biographies of people like Rockefeller, you know, the Gilded Age did actually employ a lot of people. There was a lot of labor force participation. Whereas, you know, your Googles, your Amazons, your Apples, they they employ, you know, give or take a couple hundred thousand people, but that's on a planet of what, seven billion. So just all I'm saying here is I'm not sure that we're gonna see 
the ability to massively grow GDP simply through technology. All right, have I got anything else for you? Um, so there's a quote, I think, and the quote is this. There is absolutely no good reason for social security benefits. This is a quote from Dr. Kelton. For example, to ever face cuts, our government will always be able to meet future obligations because it can never run out of money. Now, I was thinking about this before. Uh, yeah, more holes than a Swiss cheese factory, I think. That uh, if there's no reason for them to ever face cuts, is this logically inconsistent to say, well, therefore, shouldn't we just grow them exponentially? And then we're just in UBI territory, right? Universal basic income, why work? Which takes me back to the ontological argument about the need for work, the human need for work. You know, so uh, I don't know what you think about that. So that's a quote from there. Uh, what else? Okay, that's it from me on that. Uh, look, while I've got you here, I'm going to wrap up. But if you are seeing this, hopefully grab your phone right now and just hit that QR code. That will take you through to the uh, Supply Side website. Hit that button for I want to join the podcast or whatever it is. It'll take you down to the sign-up box. I'd love you to do that if you've got your phone with you right now because uh, that will help me to send you out the next episodes and keep you in the loop. So please... Rewind this video if you need to hit that with your QR code and uh, make sure you come across to the website. All right, that's it from the sharing side. Hopefully, you're just back to me on screen now, you lucky things. Summary. I hope that didn't come across as too cynical. I don't mean to be cynical. Uh, I think there are some huge problems here with MMT. There's a great deal that I want to learn. And as I work through the book over the next few days, I'm going to be putting these out and just trying to learn. I think we we owe uh, Dr. Kelton the uh, the time and the effort to understand the ideas. So from here, please add a comment. If you're seeing this on YouTube or if you're seeing this on the website, supplysidepartners.com, let me know what you think. Uh, tell me uh, where, I, where I'm wrong. Tell me if you've got extra information, if you've got links that people would find useful, please do that. Uh, you're going to find the podcast on every podcast player. So if you listen on Spotify, Amazon, wherever, just type in the Supply Side Podcast with me, uh, Jonathan Doyle. You'll find that. Last thing, uh, if you would like to support me on Patreon, if you like what you're hearing, if this is interesting, if you're getting some value from it, then there will be a link uh, to the Patreon account. I'd love you to come and make uh, a contribution on Patreon so I can keep doing this. I just want to go deeper into this and keep trying to bring you value. So I'd love your support on Patreon to, uh, to keep financing what I'm trying to do here. And otherwise, just go to Patreon and just do a search for Jonathan Doyle. You're going to find me there. All right, God bless everybody. I hope that's useful. I hope that's useful. Let's uh, let's get into this. Let's see where it takes us. My name's Jonathan Doyle. This is the Supply Side Podcast YouTube website thing. I'm going to have another video for you on MMT very soon.